Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Ruck. We thank Johnny May for his try. We thank James Botham for his surname. But I wonder if both these were necessary for bringing some glitz and glamour to a somewhat grey weekend. You could, of course, never say that about the cast of The Ruck, which is about as sexy as you can find in the A-list world of rugby podcasting. So we have this week Barnsley, who remains underwhelmed by England's lack of tactical flexibility. Uh, Yes, I do. There's much about England I admire... I can see they're close to a very big performance, but they, they still lack that ability to change the gears and the way they play on the hoof. We have a great old friend, Steve James, occasional opener for the England cricket team, well, 22 years ago anyway. And now, and sorry, this is incredibly lame, but now are you going into bat for Wales, JMO? <laughs> Not this week when they're playing in England, no. It's not slotty. I'm actually English. People, I think people need to know this. Okay, well, go on then. It sounds like you're trying to extricate yourself from Glamorgan well, pretty quickly. No, I mean, I'm, I was born in a place called Lydney in the Forest of Dean, which, you know, it's got a f- famous sort of rugby history. Yeah, brought up in Lydney, happened to go to Monmouth School and then and ended up in Wales and ended up playing for Glamorgan. I live in Wales, I've got a Welsh family, but um, I'm English. Our other guest uh, is this week's winner of a new prize called Intro of the Week, where we celebrate great opening paragraphs to newspaper columns. I say that as if we're going to be awarding the prize every week and not just making it up as we go along as usual. But anyway, the intro of the week reads as follows. A day after bullying dominated the talk at Westminster, England decided to take a leaf from the Pretty Patel playbook, (laughs) albeit the physical tactical template. In rugby, unlike politics, relentlessly battering your opponent is often the right course of action and relentless is no exaggeration in this context. So who would like to own up to that? (laughs) <laughs> well, John Mitchell, I think uh, John Mitchell, the England's defence coach, he must have had something to do with it. I mean, I, I mean, I agree with with a lot of what was written across the weekend around England's performance. I think, you know, in terms of their attitude and their and their aggression, that ten out of ten. In terms of their ambition for the Johnny Mays try, which uh, Itoji managed to look up and see the vision and space, which was brilliant, and and, and actually passed the ball in his own twenty-two. But there, there was one or two other opportunities, which I'm sure England will look back on over the, over the film and reflect on the fact that they could have actually put Ireland away because um, they utterly bullied and dominated Ireland, but they just didn't quite dominate in the area that matters, which is the scoreboard, really. So that's Lawrence. Lawrence, how, um, how proud are you of your, um, of your accolade as winner of Intro of the Week? <laughs> oh, I'm, uh, I mean, it's right up there, actually. I mean, you know, it's almost up there with the... Uh, 
17 years ago to this day that we won the World Cup. Really. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did I, did I, I mention, have I mentioned that already? So. Uh, <laughs> how poor of me to forget that 17 years ago something happened. Interesting yeah. happened in the world of rugby. Well, you, you forget you forget these things, Owen. Don't worry. But um, you know, J- Jamo remembered. He's English. <laughs> <laughs> Jamo, where were you on that day, twenty second of November, two thousand and three? I was actually at home watching it. I was writing for another newspaper, a horrible rag. I, I tell you what, I had to do. I had to do a a piece about the two Richard Hills for some reason. You know, because obviously Richard Hill, the flanker, did pretty well that day, didn't he? For some reason, I had to speak to the other Richard Hill, the scrum half, and it, he didn't want to speak to me, I don't think. So, yeah, not not a great story, that, but that's what happened. <laughs> because he was suddenly forgotten as a Richard Hill. Yeah. Hang on, Rick, so, yeah. Richard Hill's the nicest man in the world. He'd never do that, J-Mo. No, I think he, he did speak to me in the end. Didn't they go to the same school or something stupid, those two, those two Richard Hills? Yeah, that's the reason. Yeah, they went to a school in Salisbury together where William Golding taught them English. Hang on a sec, Barnsley, Holt. William Golding taught them English? Yes, <laughs> yes. What, the, the author of Lord the of the Flies? yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Well, um, he should be able to come up with intro of the week sometime soon, shouldn't he? <laughs> Uh, Lawrence, you watched a bit of the Premiership over the weekend as well. Yes, I did. Uh, I watched uh, a bit of the Premiership. Is it? I mean, twenty-seven days after it finished, actually, in, in Twickenham uh, between Exeter and Wasps, uh, we're, we're back underway again. Almost snuck under the radar, given the uh, the Autumn Nations Cup. Leicester have forgotten how to uh, win for three years, but they they brought in Richard Wigglesworth, and um, they've suddenly remembered how to win. And uh, the post Jordan Murphy era has started with with a uh, with a win, uh, albeit only one win, but it's. Um, also started with a few question marks over Steve Borthwick, which he chose to ignore. Um, I actually went up to Wasps on, on Sunday, which was a long way, but uh, they, were, they, they got out of jail really but by the skin of their teeth. Didn't play very well at all. Bristol probably deserved at least a share of the spoils, but, but Wasps managed to rob them with a Tom Willis try in the, in, the, uh, in the last few minutes. And I guess what impressed me, and I don't want to bang on about him, but you know, Jack Willis, having been kind of um, shown the door by England, um, said you know, surplus to requirements after a uh, a debut against Georgia, you know, instead of going back to his club and sort of moping around, he actually went back to his club and did what you really want international players to do and grabbed the game by the scruff of the neck, you know, a couple of crucial turnovers, scored a try and probably was was the outstanding player on the pitch. So, uh, you know, good luck to him and maybe he might feature uh, moving forward again. Would you say that Jack Willis is the is the back rower most deserving of inclusion in the England squad who played oh, Premiership rugby at the weekend, or, or, or would that be a certain Sam Simmons, who who really was um, absolutely extraordinary for Exeter on Friday night? Well, I'd have them both in there, quite frankly. But you know, the, 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 there is some obviously the performance, and be interesting to get the, the panel's view on on England's back row conundrum and the performances of the weekend, because Messrs Underhill and, and Curry weren't too bad either, really, were they? So uh, until Billy Vinopola gets back to playing at the level that we all know he can play at, I think he he, he deserves to stand down for a little while, really. And, and I would give, if nothing else, just to get more out of him. You know, we talk about that the best way to get players to play at their very best is to, is to encourage a bit of competition. And I think Sam Simmons and, and, and Jack Willis are that competition, along with Ben Earl. And, um, you know, I think that... Uh, Eddie and Billy have got a, a bit of a conundrum because he's not going to be able to play his way into, into form, is he? Because he's going to be playing for Saracens and there's no games, at least until January. So uh, I think there's a bit of a conundrum there for, uh, for the head coach to, to answer, really. Jamo, I wrote a column in the uh, in the Times last week saying that it was um, may, maybe time for, for Billy to, uh, to step aside or to take a, a, a good look at himself, whatever. And it, it didn't go down too well because um, I think... Uh, 
the English media, but also certainly the English uh, England fans, um, are very much enthralled to Billy A because um, he's a great personality, and B because we've all seen what his uh, rugby at his best, uh, how destructive it is. How have you, would you uh, have assessed him over sort of uh, the last year? I guess do you, do you think he, he he's close to the old Billy at all, or do you, do you think competition elsewhere maybe demands a, a change? I mean, I obviously bow to uh, Lawrence's greater knowledge on uh, on this subject, but um, I, I thought he was a lot better on Saturday, wasn't he? I don't think he's been anywhere near his, his best uh, over the last year. But um, for me, that, that back row that England put out on Saturday, that's that's their ba- best back row, I think, isn't it? I mean, it's interesting because, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you read, I did a column with Sam Warburton the, the week before, you know, about England's back row of riches. And, and he, he was talking about the fact that for years they didn't have a, a genuine seven, a, a genuine poacher. Now, you know, they seem to have sort of three or four, don't they? I mean, you know, it wasn't that long ago when James Haskell was considered England's best number seven. And, you know, with all due respect, you'd never describe him as a as a poacher and you know I think that the point that Sam was making was that you know he, he's always advocated playing Curry and Underhill together but if you do play them to, together you pr- you probably need quite a a big sort of more traditional number eight in between them and I, I, you know he, he seems to think that that trio of Billy Underhill and Curry is is England's best best back row I mean he also said he thought all five of them, including Willis and Anne Earl, would would go on the Lions tour next summer. So yeah, it's quite it's quite a turnaround, isn't it? Because you know there was a period where we were all talking about the the Welsh back row and the you know the depth that, that they had there, and there was a time when we were talking about the Irish back row. But you know that's totally flipped around now, and England just got ridiculous resources there, haven't they? Okay, so it, it was a weekend that was slightly low on entertainment factor. I think we probably all agree with that. Though the, the shining light, as, as mentioned, was um, that Johnny may try. Newspapers, we, we, we're um, ever predictable in the way we look at things. We see a great try, and then we go, "Oh, was that the greatest ever?" So we'll let's uh, let some uh, podcast being uh, being exa- exactly the same same frame of mind. How do we place Johnny May's try in, in the sort of the, the pantheon of of? Uh, uh, of great scores. I hate to say this as an Englishman, but you recall the French try against the All Blacks. I think it was La Maison finished it for sheer drama. There was been nothing like that at Twickenham. But from an English perspective, what's the the best? Like, there are so many tries. It's very hard. But what, what just just we were asked to write about this, weren't we? Yesterday, Slotty for today's Times, and. Immediately, Johnny May's try against New Zealand just shot into mind when everyone sort of thought he was a bit of a joke figure and what was Lancaster doing picking him? And he ran through an all-black team that were... You just couldn't you couldn't perforate their defence. He just sliced them open. There was that try. And I think the Chris Ashton try against... was It was Australia, wasn't it? Where Courtney Laws popped a little blindside pass 99 metres out. And Ashton just scored this beautiful try, not just pace, it was about vision and skill. And, and those are the two tries that really stand out for me. Lawrence, given the day of the anniversary, you can nominate one of your own. Well, it's always, it's always interesting when, when you're asked about tries. I'm sure everyone around the panel has scored a try, but in a, in a losing game. Uh, you can score a great try in a losing game, but no one remembers it, do they really? Because um, you lost so tries can be measured on on their significance. And 17 years ago, Jason Robinson scored a pretty important try for England and England rugby fans. I agree with Barnsley. I think the uh, another French try in 1994, which might just be 
just dipped under the radar of professional rugby, but the, the, known as the try from the end of the earth. Yeah. Uh, Jean-Luc Sadonnet scored a, a wonderful try against the All Blacks and, uh, and, and France ended up winning that, that, that test match in New Zealand, which is pretty special. So that was an amazing try and an amazing result. So that would be right up there. Dan Luger uh, scored a, a couple of really momentous tries at Twickenham, one particularly that defeated Australia in the last minute of the game, which as you say, you know, for me personally, that was my favourite try because um, we just lost the line out before five yards from the line. Danny Grucock was overthrown in the line out and then the torrent of sledging that came from the Australian team was uh, quite significant. And then lo and behold, 30 seconds later, the hand of Dan Luger shut them all up again. So uh, yeah, that was probably my favourite international try because it it was really significant for us to beat Australia in that particular game. And who knows how much, how significant it was psychologically in terms of playing them again in the World Cup final two years later. Lawrence, I was, I was just, um, I was just looking for your name in, in the, uh, in the team, which I thought scored one of the great England tries, which was um, Ben Cohen's try for, uh, for England in against Ireland in 2002. But uh it t- tells me on the team sheet that Joe Worsley was the... Uh, was no, the- no, I was, um, that was my 50th cap. The very esteemed Sir Clive Woodward decided to drop me for my 50th cap uh, <laughs> for, for some strange reason. He'd, he'd obviously had eaten something terrible on the menu the night before at the Petersham Hotel and, uh, and, and obviously had a, a very dodgy wine or something. But uh, I'm so uh, glad I brought that up then. I actually came onto the field for uh, Lewis Moody. And uh, I'll never forget this, actually. I, uh, when I came on the field, I hadn't really been a replacement I'd never really been one um, in 49 games for England. I had in my first game, uh, which Barnsley will remember, but, uh, but in my 40, 50th game, I came on as a replacement for, for Lewis Moody and, and I found it very difficult, I'll be honest with you. I didn't really understand how to, how to be a replacement. And Australia scored two tries while I was on the field. So all I can say is it's a bit like coming into a Grand Prix about 50 laps into a, to a 70 lap race. And as I, walked, as I walked off the pitch, this Gloucester fan just looked at me and he said, here, Delalio, he said, we were winning before you went on. <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah, we were, but you're right. Ben Cohen scored an absolute beauty from uh, James Simpson. Daniel put him through, I think. I was just going to come back to Lawrence there. Ten minutes ago, we were talking about a certain Billy Vunapola not being dropped and perhaps needs to be dropped to get another level out of him. Yeah. Now, I'm not suggesting, Lol, that you are playing in third gear or anything, but did you find that, that decision to drop you forced you to go again and 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 and, and put more into your game because of your sort of frustration. I, I mean, I was pretty good at getting dropped, but so after a while, it didn't really work with me. You just thought, <laughs> what the hell? But from your point yeah. of view, Lawrence, was, yeah. was that a moment when you said, right, I'm going to go another level and yeah. show that bugger Woodward how good I can be? And, yeah, and listen, I mean, all I would say is that, you know, of course, any player disagrees with being dropped. Uh, yeah. If you don't, there's something wrong with you. But uh, no, there's no doubt. I mean, I was back in the team the following week and I didn't get dropped for another four years. So, uh, you know, that, that there was absolutely, uh, absolutely did give me the proverbial kick out the backside that I needed. I scored a try in the, in the following game. I always think as a back row forward that, no matter who you are, what country you play for, you you should be one of the leading players. Every four games, you should be winning at least one Man of the Match award every four games. And you should probably be scoring a try every four games as well. So if you can do that, then that's where you should be. And I, and I, I, I agree with Jamer. I thought Billy Vanapola, I said in my piece, actually, I said, welcome back to the party. Welcome back to the show, Billy, because he did come up with a couple of crucial turnovers. But uh, 
if he's not doing the things he was doing a year ago, which is attracting three or four defenders, bursting through tackles and offloading the ball, then I think you, you, know, you, need, you need something else from the back row. And, and I think maybe to your point, Barnsley, if he does have a little break, it could be the best thing for him. Jamo, we haven't had your, uh, your, your number one try yet. Yeah, OK. Um, so I was actually reading the paper this morning and I was thinking, I hope to God somebody's mentioned that Johnny May try against New Zealand and Barnsley came up trumps for me. I was actually at that game covering that match. That was an incredible try. I mean, it was early on. I mean, he skinned Conrad Smith and then skinned Israel Dagg on the, on the outside. And, and very rarely do you see New Zealanders sort of staring each, at each other in disbelief. I mean, that was a, an incredible try. The, the one I would mention is for the, for the Lions out in New Zealand, the Sean O'Brien yeah. try. Um, yeah. You know, the Lions are obviously a, a different level. And, you know, the sheer audacity of that, of that try with Liam Williams running from his, from his own 22. I mean, that, that's one that will certainly live in the memory for, for a long time. How on earth did that not make it into our paper this morning, Barnsley? Yeah. A, a... Uh, they were Twickenham tries. <laughs> that's right they were twiddling tries yeah I just when Jamo said that I'm thinking oh god then I thought yeah we were asked to pick the best tries scored by Englishmen oh, okay fair enough you can't get even in the contenders <laughs> list <laughs> yeah, he we, must, we must just add that the, uh, the the greatest try of all time as voted by the public was of course um yeah, uh, Philippe Saint-Andre's try at Twickenham which was obviously a long time ago now but uh that was you know started by Serge Blanco under his own post yeah yeah was that voted better than the Gareth Edwards try? Uh, certainly the best try at Twickenham, yeah. Oh, at Twickenham, oh, okay. On great try scorers, I, I would suggest is probably putting together the, the sort of canon of, of greatest tries by a single person. I mean, we, we, we talk about his try on Saturday. Jamo and Barnsley, you mentioned his try against New, against New Zealand 2014, I think that was, which was uh, uh, had the crowd on their feet, one of the best ever. Uh, his two tries against France and the Six Nations yeah. back in um, February, were, they, were, they were both amazing uh, individual efforts as well. So, yeah, a, 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 amazing, amazing player, that, that boy. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you back terror, there must be consequences. Shamima Begum was stripped of her British citizenship last year. It was a Times front page that gripped the nation. They have shown they hate our country and the values that we stand for. A story that sparked debate in Parliament, in the courts and in every pub and living room across the country. All this week, Stories of Our Times will be stepping back and taking a considered look at the case of Shamima Begum. Should we bring British nationals who joined the Islamic State back home? Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.
Jamo, so here we are talking about England and picking away at the back row and wondering if Billy Vanapola still demands a place, etc. Having covered Wales, do you see Wales as um, coming up with a game? Short answer, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where, where do you start with Wales? It's been horrendous. And that's actually one of the big problems with the, with the Wayne Pivak era. I mean, we were promised this new sort of wider, more ambitious game. We haven't seen it. And what, what we haven't seen is any sort of real clue as to how Pivac wants to play the game. And I think that's one of the big frustrations in Wales. Just doesn't really seem to be any semblance of a, of a game plan. What we're also seeing is we don't really seem to know what Pivac, what sort of side he wants to pick and who, you know, who might be in his best side to, to play that, that sort of game. I, I think they're on an absolute hiding this weekend in internationally. One point I would make is I, I I do think Wales more than other teams suffer because of not having any crowds. You know they've got the the best the best stadium in the world, and you know we've seen that in the past how much that has inspired them. If you go back to that Scotland game when they lost internationally, which was a dreadful game, wasn't it? And but they only lost by a by a score at the end. I actually think if they'd have been playing that game in the Principality Stadium with a with a full house, they might have actually snuck that at the end. I mean, they probably didn't deserve to win, but we've seen that quite a few times with uh, with Wales. So, look, I mean, if England were coming to the Principality Stadium on, on Saturday in front of a full house, you can sort of see the point that Eddie Jones was making about, you know, this is Wales's biggest game of the year. And, you know, having lost six, I mean, I know they, I know they beat Georgia on Saturday, but that doesn't really count for too much. So if they were coming to a full Principality Stadium, you could see them sort of rousing themselves with some sort of performance. But... As things stand at the moment, I just can't see it happening. It'll be interesting to see what sort of side Pivac picks and how much sort of significance he attaches to the to the game against Georgia. Because there were a few players who did did stick their hands up there. They did sort the set piece out a bit, which was a shambles against Ireland. The likes of sort of Johnny Williams in the centre carried quite well. Wainwright had a good game. The whole front row had a fairly decent game. So um, Jake Ball was another one. So it'd be interesting to see who he does pick. Do you see reasons to believe in the Wales game sort of bottoming out of its uh, dip in form, J-Mo, and, uh, and, and coming out the other side? Or, or, or are you just a bit befuddled by the whole thing and, and find it hard to work out how, how they can get out of it and where they will get out of it? I think most people are a bit befuddled. I think in the in the Six Nations pre-COVID, you know, there were some decent signs, weren't there? And in fairness against England at Twickenham, the scoreline probably flattered in, uh, Wales a bit at the end, didn't it? 33-30. But they showed some good spirit and they, they played some good rugby. They scored a brilliant try just after after half-time. But since they've come back after the lockdown, I don't know, they've just been shapeless and there's all sorts of rumours about unrest in the, in the camp. And, you know, the sacking of Byron Hayward... Just, I don't know, I, I, I personally didn't like that. Um, I thought that sent out a, a terrible message, really. You know, Pivac knows this guy, Byron Hayward. It's not like he's got in a defence coach who, you know, he hasn't worked with before and he suddenly realised he's not the right man. He worked with Byron Hayward for, for five years at the Scarlets. You know, and suddenly to get rid of him, you know, probably two things, one or two things, or maybe both happened there. Pivac is either feeling a bit of pressure himself and thinks he needs to do something, or the players aren't happy with with Hayward and have gone to Pivac and he's he's made that decision. So, you know, all those rumours we hear about unrest and then you get the get the defence coach going doesn't paint a, a pretty picture at the moment. And I think you've also got some sort of older players with a lot of question marks around them. I mentioned Falato earlier. You know, can can he come back to his form? 
you know, they're trying to get Jonathan Davis back in the team maybe a bit early after a really long injury, and then he's he's picked up a, another injury. You know, George North's got dropped and then come back on the bench. Lee Halfpenny, is he worth his place? You know, Alan Wynne-Jones, is he still the still the same player? So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of question marks about senior players. And as I say, there's a lot of question marks about selection in general. That's a great old generation that you just um, you just listed there, Jamo, isn't it? Yeah, I know, and at some some stage there, you know, age is gonna gonna catch up with them, and it's it, it's never easy transitioning, is it? Um, getting that exactly right and introducing youngsters at the at, at the right time is is never easy. You know, you know, sometimes just because you're getting on a bit and you have a, a couple of bad games doesn't necessarily mean you're you're finished, does it? I mean, Lawrence can probably talk more about that. You know, people are easy, very quick to write you off just because you have a you know a couple of you know, ordinary games when you're you're getting into your thirties, and it might just be a you know a bad run of form, and you, you you can find that form again. The parallels between England after you know Clive Woodward stepped down, and and uh, you know I think when you've had a period of sustained success, and Wales have really punched, if you don't mind me saying, have punched above their weight for a long, long time. I think yeah, massive, you know. massively, massively. And uh, you know, with the Gatland Edwards combo. I think when they both decided to move on, I think one has to appreciate what, what leaves the building. There's a huge amount of rugby IP there um, that, you know, we've, we've, we've gone, we know, I mean, Gatlin will be successful again somewhere else of that. I have no doubt. Edwards is already doing that with, with France. He's transformed France, you know, really. So everyone understands how to become successful, but how to stay successful is, is the biggest challenge, particularly in transition and change of, of coaching staff, of players. England, failed miserably and uh, horrendously, in fact, at, at a post-2003 transition from the most successful team in the world. We, we ended up dropping down to about fifth or sixth in the world rankings virtually overnight. You know, we, we lost um, three test matches immediately after the World Cup by nearly 50 points apiece in the Southern Hemisphere. We then lost to Ireland the following year in the Six Nations and, and we were in a mess. Um, and the great sides, you know, even New Zealand, when they're at the top, they yeah, they lose, they, they lose a couple of games, but they don't lose five or six in a row. And that's what's happened to, that happened to England and it's happened to Wales. And I think that the, the questions there, I mean, I was concerned when Sam Warburton suddenly distanced himself from the squad and, and walked away. That, that you know, I, I don't really follow what, exactly what was going on in Wales, but that, that raised a big question mark for me because I'm thinking, how can someone of his ability and quality, you know, walk away from, from, from that coaching setup? And I just wonder whether there's a, there's been an energy level dip, you know, when you lose people like Sean Edwards and Warren Gatlin, you know, I, I think it's going to be a real problem for them to solve that immediately overnight. I mean, I, I think there's a, 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 sometimes it's a straightforward issue and, and we look around for different reasons, but you've got to have the right man at the top. The top coaches pick the best, don't pick the best teams, you're going to struggle. Now, I felt that England's policy of continuity under Clive Woodward didn't work because... I thought Andy Robinson was a very good number two, but I never thought he was a number one. England didn't pick number ones. They didn't get selection right. They struggled. Eddie Jones makes the point that we in the media go on about club form, but club and country are different. Well, sometimes you can look at coaching and think management at club and country is different. Wayne Pivak, he had a Scarlets team that played very expansive, open rugby, but in a league that we all know is high on skill, low on intensity. When he tried to bring that to Wales in the first couple of games, 
I never felt it was really going to happen because Wales lacked that punch and PFAC didn't seem to have the right shape to it. Uh, and, and we've mentioned New Zealand. Again, uh, I felt that Scott Robbins, Robertson or Dave Rennie was the man who should have taken over, that the, the whole Henry Hansen era had reached its conclusion. But instead, New Zealand went for Ian Foster, one of the backroom staff, and they are at the moment, in, for New Zealand in particular, some degree of trouble. And you can look at it and say, all those countries, it all links back to one thing that didn't make the right appointment after a, a giant name in the coaching world quit. I think one of the big problems is PBAC's trying to play a different way, essentially with a, with a group of players who've been playing in a certain way for, for 12 years under, under Gatlin. So... That's why I think he probably has to make some, you know, big decisions and and may, maybe go with some younger players and he maybe has to jettison some, some of the older guys because it's it's difficult to to get people to to change when they've been used to to play in that same way for for so long. And the big big problem is he's come in and said he wants to to change things, but it's okay doing that. But you think he'd still build on on what Wales were good at before and what their strengths were, and they they, they seem to have lost that. You know that that ferocious defence and. The, you know the physical edge in the in the collisions. That's that's just missing at the moment. It's just just not there, and that's why I fear for them against England. I just think England will will beat them up physically and totally outmuscle them. It sounds like we're all agreed that the Wales are somewhat there for the taking, if you like. Do we think that England are finally going to uh, apply a killer blow, the likes of which they've clearly failed to do over the last couple of weeks? They had um, Ireland and Georgia exactly where they wanted them. Uh, and Italy, Owen. And Italy, sorry, as well. Won all three games convincingly. Could have gone into half centuries of points on all of those games, I personally thought. They should, but I think they've got to get the balance between playing hard physical rugby, kick in to look for territory, and then when they've got the territory, to really keep the ball in hand and accelerate. They have to get that balance. It hasn't been there. It's maybe never been there under Eddie Jones. They've either played it really fast all the way through and got themselves dizzy and blown games, or they've played it in third gear all the way through, and they haven't gone into overdrive and put teams away. And England have the capacity to win very heavily for all the reasons Steve has said, uh, with Welsh deficiencies at the moment. But until they actually go there, and until Farrell and Youngs in particular understand when to change the gear and put teams away then we'll be waiting. Again, Woodward's team that Lawrence played with, they were very good at accelerating away. This team, Lawrence, have very fine players, but they don't seem to have that feel, that instinct for when to just put the game away, put the foot on the throat. Because we know what this team are capable of. When they beat New Zealand in Japan, they, they, they reached a level, you know, and, and in parts against Australia the weekend before. And in the game against Ireland, you know, over in at, at Lansdowne Road, you know, I think that we've seen them at their highest level. So, you know, we, we judge them quite harshly against, against the very highest performances because they're talking, we're talking about a team here that we're in the World Cup final. So, you know, we're not we're not being critical for the sake of it. We're just saying that when you've achieved that kind of level, that that you should have more in you as a performance. I, I was very impressed with the with the way that they went from a, a warm up against Georgia and Italy to to lift their level in terms of their intensity, physical physicality, with no crowd there, as Jamo mentioned, against Ireland, which was a real test. You know, they and they they've now walloped Ireland four times 
you know, on the bounce pretty comfortably. But as you say, they've got to judge themselves against the very best. I think, as you say, it's that balance. They've got it in them because there's no way you can score a try from your own 22 from turnover without being a class act and, and, and what a try it was. But they've got to get into this mindset that from the 10-metre line onwards, there's no kicking the ball away unless you're scoring a try. You know, unless you can, once you get into the last quarter of the field, you don't kick the ball unless it's to score a try. And, you know, you can't let sides off the hook. You've got to be relentless. And, you know, that for me, I couldn't believe it was only 18, 18 nil at half time. I, I was uh, utterly dominant. They must have gone in there at half time and gone, how are we not 22, 25, you know, 30 points up? And, and that's the sort of hunger and desire that they've got to have as a group. And they should be the ones driving the driving the half-time team talk, saying, guys, we need, you know, we need, we need another two or three tries here. Do you think the players are, feel frustrated by it at all? I mean, they'd never, they'd never admit it in public, but um, they all know that they were uh, more than um, 11 points better. They'll also know that a, a player like Henry Slade has just been just in such wonderful form for Exeter, must wonder why he can't look like that for England. It'd be a fantastic attacking, uh, defending game, but, um, not, not, as, not as an attacker. I don't, think they, I don't think they do. I think they're very, very united as a group, certainly from the players I speak to in the camp. They're all well, you know, right behind Eddie Jones as well. Uh, even the players who aren't in the, in, the, uh, in the team, you know, often there's a bit of unhappiness if you're on the fringes, whatever. Everyone doesn't have a bad word to say about their coach, um, who, they, who they fully support. But that, that, that misses the point, I think. I'd like, to, I'd like to believe that they challenge him behind closed doors in the right environment, as we all over the years have challenged the coaches that we work with, you know, to say, maybe we need to do this and that. And, you know, I, I don't entirely agree with you, Eddie, about the way we should play this bit of the game. I think we should do that and, and push each other a little bit. And I just, that's the bit I don't know whether that happens or not. I think there's still a little bit of, um, of just doing as they're told to do. I don't think England will be taking too many chances this weekend. I think they'll want to make a real physical statement. If you remember... It's only last year when England came to, to Cardiff and Wales won the way to a, to a Grand Slam and Wales, Wales matched them physically, didn't they? And, and really rattled them. You know, England were in charge of that game at, at one stage and then sort of fell apart in the second half because Wales started to match them physically. So I, th- I think, you know, in that first half on, on Saturday, they'll, they'll just want to make a real physical statement and, and make sure they, they win all those collisions. They, they know that Wales will, will try and raise their game. Huh? I think that will be their their primary concern. I I, I don't think they'll be too concerned with uh, trying to expand their horizons early on. I just feel that the whole process of, of physical dominance is something that England have um, have become excellent at. It, it was certainly in the last three games, and at some point they can do a lot more with with their rugby, and they and they have the opportunities to with with their with their turnover ball, with their sort of they say they say they want to to flick the switch when it's time to go, and uh, as Lawrence says that. They seem to create the openings, but then decide because they've been tactically told to, to, to do so that you have to kick the ball away or, or, or slice through a little grubber into touch or something. And Slotty, we're only arguing on the minutiae. You know, we all know that to win international rugby, you've got to build a score. And that, if that's three, six, nine points, you know, England under Martin Johnson, you know, we didn't go out there and suddenly start playing champagne rugby from minute one. You've got to, you know, international rugby is t- tough to win against the top sides and you build a score, build a score. But when you get into a position of dominance and 18 nil is dominant, you can take a few more risks after that, I think. And you can start to, you know, the game should start to open up a little bit. And for some bizarre reason, it, it didn't at the weekend. And that's probably why we, we all left feeling a little bit sort of frustrated, really. And, and you know, Ireland 
came back into a game that they should have been nowhere near for far too long in the second half, if I'm honest. I wonder, gents, if we're suffering, England are suffering from almost too much of a good thing. I don't think I've ever seen an England or any fly half with such a range and such an array of attacking kicks close to the try line. Lowell said about five minutes ago, you shouldn't leave a 22 till you've scored a try. And if it's not by passing, when you kick, you've got to score. Now, England score quite a few tries from Owen Farrell's little dinks behind, the kick that he put in for Johnny May, who'd shifted to the right wing on Saturday. The problem is, for every one of those, there's three or four more we're seeing against Italy, Georgia and Ireland, where England actually have a better opportunity to score by keeping it in hand. But we forget about Farrell putting those wasted kicks into the corner where a try could have been scored because every now and again, every fifth one, they do score. So we go, wow, what a great attacking game that is. And I think Owen Farrell really needs someone to say, your balance isn't right at the moment. He can kick brilliantly. He can pass brilliantly. But at the moment, he either does one or the other. And an outside half at the highest level has to be able... Think of Dan Carter. He would run one second, he would pass the next, then he would kick. We're not seeing that from Farrell. We'll see a running game or a kicking game. We won't see a balanced game. Not at the moment. All right, you podcast perfectionist. Let's wrap this one up. England will, will, will clearly do everything the Barnsley wants to them at the weekend. Actually, you know, you've been saying that for bloody two years, haven't you? We'll wrap up in the traditional fashion. Um, we uh, would like to know who your god or goddess of the week is. Who would like to go first? Jamo, you go first. You're our guest. I want to run you through my, my writing week last week, okay? Cool. <laughs> okay, so Monday, Wales call up Jim Botham. So I'll write about his call up, okay? Tuesday, yeah. Jonathan Humphreys, the forwards coach, is put up. He says Jim Botham is in Wales' plans for the next World Cup. So I write about that. So Wednesday, news leaks out that Jim Botham is starting for Wales against Georgia. So I write about that. <laughs> okay, Thursday, they announce the team. Jim Botham is in it. Wayne Peebach says he's got a very big future in the game. So I write about that. Okay. Friday, we've got an interview with Jim Botham. So I write that. Also, I helped Sam Warburton with his column and he writes about Jim Botham as well. So, <laughs> there's no one else who can be my God other than Jim Botham. But he, had a, he wasn't outstanding on his debut. He's decent, but it's, it's a great story. I actually think he was playing out of position. He looks like an open side flanker who had to play six. And Sam Warburton actually thinks he's a real deal. So if Sam, Sam says that, I, I agree. So yeah, my God of the week is Jim Botham. God of the week. It has been dark and gloomy and literally, metaphorically, in life, in sport, uh, the rugby that has been played in this tournament has been a drab. And then Johnny May turns up and scores that try. Johnny May, everything he did was brilliant. So there is no doubt Johnny May is my God of the Week. My God of the Week is oceans apart from the choice of my two esteemed colleagues on the on the pod. But... Um, Oceans Apart is a, is a documentary, Greed, Betrayal and Pacific Island Rugby, uh, which Dan Leo has, has brought to the party. And in, in an Autumn Nations Cup where 
the so-called tier two nations like Fiji would have had the opportunity to play three tier one countries in, in rugby. It's a bit ironic that this documentary has been released, but it is a must watch. There's always two sides to every story and world rugby and, and the tier one nations will, will give you a slightly different tier, you know, edge on it. But uh, I think the necessity for, for as many people as possible to watch this documentary and really get behind it, it's had 400,000 views in a very short space of time because it really shows that, that, that there is, there's a real story that needed to be told about uh, the gap between the tier two nations, Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, etc. 25% of all professional rugby players in the world are from the Pacific Islands. Uh, and yet uh, they've, been, uh, they've been treated uh, so appallingly across, uh, across to, you know, for so many years. So well done to Dan Leo and to the team that he's put together to bring us oceans apart. He is uh, our God of the week. Yeah, nice one, Lawrence. We heard from um, Dan Leo on this podcast last week, did an interview with Jonesy. Um, you can still listen to that. That's still available for download. So um, so please do. It's a good interview and it is a great film as well. My God of the Week's a, a bit left of field. Uh, a man called Neil Smith from Cornwall, who, who I'd be amazed if he knew about. But anyway, he's got a nice story. He was a um, community rugby coach down there, paid for uh, on the payroll of the RFU. He got on one of those fitness programmes. He was going to do 25 press-ups, over 20, 25 press-ups a day for 25 days, part of a sort of a mental a welfare a, a awareness thing. Anyway, after 25 days, he um, decided to make it 25 weeks. He's done over 4,500 press-ups, but... Um, more to the point, long before 25 weeks were up, like um, I think every single community rugby coach paid for by the RFU, he was um, he was let go when the um, when the economy went um, pear shaped, um, which meant that um, all the uh, the schools and the clubs that he was trying to bring coaching and rugby to uh, were not getting um, getting the benefit of his work anymore. But anyway, even though he wasn't paid, he still carried on doing it. From his position of redundancy, he started going back into the clubs. And he's uh, intending to start up his own business doing that off, off his own back. So um, so I think he's a, a, a bit of a god of rugby as well. So uh, that, that's Neil Smith. Uh, well done to you, mate. And that is the ruck for this week. Lawrence, Barnsley, J-Mo, lovely to speak to you all. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you to all our listeners, to all our downloaders. Come back again next week. Please recommend us. We'll be back as ever. Have a great week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.